Let's pray together, church. Father, we recognize that your son is the great I am. This morning we ask, oh God, in humble gratitude for you to invest into us by your spirit, awakening us to the truth of what the word of God has given to us, that Jesus Christ is the great I am. Help us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Last year, I went to New York with my daughter and her husband and my wife. Four of us went, and as we were walking around looking at different places, we stopped at the Microsoft store. And the Microsoft store had many uh, neat devices and such. And as I walked in, I noticed there was a gravitational pull. Uh, from this certain device to my wife, and it was like she couldn't help it. But she, she was drawn to this big computer screen. If you know my wife, she loves artistic and makes everything pretty. <clears throat> it's a giant screen with a pencil that you could write on it and had all of her applications that she normally uses and, and something there for her to, to play on it. And for 30 minutes or so, she drew and played and looked at me with those eyes. And, and I thought, oh, she loves this thing. And so uh, we began looking at it, and, and we looked at the price of this thing and, and the ability to get it home and such. And we just said, oh, it's, it's not, a, not a good time. Well, <clears throat> that was in late November. And December comes around, and uh, I, have, I usually try to do well with my Christmas ideas for my bride because she's very special to me. And so I put a large box under the tree for her. Yes, I did. And I could tell, and and she even told me that she got excited last year when she saw that big box under the tree. And then she opened it, and it was not the computer. (laughs) Oops. Um, <clears throat> she told me this year she was a little disappointed last year because that was her, her expectation. Because I've never let her down before, right? <clears throat> this morning, I want to talk about expectations. Because people all around this city, our state, our country, and even the world uh, go to sleep with expectations of what tomorrow will bring for them. It's Christmas, after all. And many have been raised on high expectations of receiving things on Christmas Day, things that may make you happy or smile or fulfill that longing within your soul. But I don't want to talk about Christmas expectations as much as I want to talk about a different expectation. And that is the expectation that Jesus Christ has for us. I'd like to to turn it over a bit and say, make this statement and then work through this statement with you. The coming of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus did not expect to be acknowledged. 
He came to be worshipped. When Jesus Christ came to the earth, when He became flesh for us, that we celebrate all Christmas, He did not come to merely be acknowledged. He came to be worshipped. And I'd like to show you in the scripture why I believe this statement is true and why I believe that this statement could be transformative for you or for someone that you know. Because many in our culture acknowledge Jesus Christ. We may even put a sticker up or post it on Facebook. Jesus is the reason for the season. But I want to tell you that even at its at its. At its least, non-Christians can post Jesus is the reason for the season every year. Because acknowledging that the season is about Jesus is not Christianity. That's history. There is more than an acknowledgement of Jesus Christ that Christianity is. Christianity is about worshiping, and what we read this morning, the angels said, glory to God in the highest. That is the essence of what Christianity is. So let's open our Bibles and take a look at that premise, and you can tell me whether or not you believe that premise is a true statement or not. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Let's begin with this, which is often grouped into the Christmas story. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or the Greek word magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born, help me out, born what? King of the Jews. Excuse me. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to do what? Now, I, I think this is important for us to read and understand. Even Magi, as we learned Wednesday night in our class, astrologers from the east came around the world or across the world came to find a king. First of all, they recognized who he was. Did you notice? What is he? He's a king, and it's going to make people mad. (coughs) In fact, so mad that, that Herod's going to kill babies because of it. But it wasn't merely a recognition, because even Herod will recognize that there is a coming king. But that's not enough. What does the scripture say? The scripture says, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star and we have come to do what? To worship him. You see, Jesus did not come to merely be recognized as the king. He came to be worshipped. And it started with pagan, non-Jewish, non-schooled people many schooled in religious and religion people to come and worship him because the purpose of Jesus is coming church is for worship and i want to encourage you this christmas season 
to not miss the purpose of a Christian on Christmas is to worship Christ the Lord. And when we sing those songs that say, oh, come, let us what? Adore him. This is a Christian Christmas. It's not merely acknowledging that Jesus is the reason for the season. It is to say I am bowing my soul in worship. I've encouraged my family every year as long as I can remember that the first thing you do on Sunday morning is recognize Jesus Christ that the day is about him. Every Christmas morning, wake up. Happy birthday, Jesus. That was the message when, when they were younger. But even today, it's praise the name of Jesus. With all this said, I think it's important for us to understand. If, if I, as your pastor, am saying Christmas is about, not, and the advent of Jesus, not merely Christmas, but the advent of Jesus is not just about recognizing or acknowledging Jesus, but about worship. What is worship? And I asked my family this question last night. What is worship? I said, well, it is, it is when something is more important to you than anything else. Right? Yeah, that, that works. What is worship? It's, it's giving of yourself to something. If you look in the Hebrew, that's the Old Testament. There's a word called avad, A-V-A-D, avad. And it's translated in the scripture as to worship. In fact, if you read uh, Exodus chapter 34, you'll see this word avad, and it's, it's translated worship. I'll read it to you. It says this. Six days shall you, it's not translated worship, rather. Six days shall you work, but on the seventh <clears throat> day you shall rest. That word for work is the word avad, which is oftentimes translated worship. And it, it means to serve In fact, when Moses is standing before Pharaoh, he says, let my people go that we may go avad. Now, he doesn't mean that they can go out into the wilderness and start planting gardens. Avad. He means that they may go and give their service unto God. What is worship? Worship is serving your God. It is serving him in a way that you serve no other. Worship is giving yourself to the service of the king. Now, many of you young folks may not have this concept, but if you grew up in yesteryear, you would have understood the the things of the draft and, and going into what we would call military service or going into the service. And even soldiers, when they would come back home, they were called servicemen. Because they were going to serve their country. To to be under the authority and to give their life and their homage to their country. They were servicemen. Christian, you are servicemen and servicewomen in another service, in a service of the king. You are worshipers, afad, servants of the Most High.
What does it look like? Well, sometimes we can recognize what worship looks like even when it's not worship of God. Did y'all know worship happens a whole lot in our culture? If you go to a game, football game at Tiger Stadium, you'll hear this before every football game on the loudspeaker with video and words on the screen. It will say something like this. Tiger Stadium, it's the cathedral of college football. And what, Eli? Where are you? And what? And worship happens here. Every single football game. You'll see that. And, and it's true. Because people give themselves to their tailgate. And they give themselves to their team and their players. They are serving this movement called college football. <clears throat> Worship is a service. It is a devotion to something. If you're married, you can understand this uh, as well. When you give yourself to your spouse, Holland, Peyton, you guys, Saturday night, big day for you. They are giving themselves to each other always and forever. There is a devotion there in which Holland will look at her husband-to-be on that altar and will say, I pledge myself to you until death do we part. It's going to be good. But there's a devotion that's taking place right there. And it's no wonder that the Bible in Ephesians chapter 5 relates then the marriage to our relationship with God because I am denying all others and committing myself to one in sickness and in health to serve and love and to deny all others. Boy, that sounds a whole lot like Christianity, doesn't it? I'm giving myself to Jesus Christ. I'm denying all others, but proposing my love and devotion Always and forever. This is is worship. Jesus, in fact, identified it like this. In a conversation he had with somebody who had everything he wanted. The Bible says a rich man came to Jesus. And says, Jesus, what's the most important command? Now, everybody in this room, in your own way, is rich. We all have what we need. But this man in particular was, was a rich man who had it all. And Jesus, how did he respond to this man who said, what's the most important command? Do you remember? He said, love the Lord your God. With all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Service, devotion, love. This is the worship that God requires. And that man, this man, this rich man, went away sad. Because his love and his service and his devotion was not to the man standing in front of him named Jesus Christ. It was to everything else that he had. He was unwilling to commit himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He identified Jesus. He acknowledged Jesus as a great teacher. Otherwise, he wouldn't ask him a question. But Jesus wants more than just the acknowledgement of who he is. He wants our devotion to who he is. He wants us to worship him. Y'all with me? C.S. Lewis, many of you know, Clive Staples Lewis, fantastic writer. Many of you have read his books. He says this in Mere Christianity, the book that I've recently read again. He says, I'm, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus They say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Oh, that sounds a whole lot like what we're talking about, doesn't it? He continues, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of things, said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifyingly, or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And God is not merely to be acknowledged. If you read through the scripture, the entire Old Testament up to Jesus, God did not merely want to be acknowledged. In fact, he called an entire nation out and transformed a group of people into being A people called to worship. So here's what I want to ask the next question. I hope that 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 makes sense. For many people, like that rich ruler who come to Jesus... The question that that begs to be answered for them is, why? Why is Jesus worthy of worship? Why did you come on Christmas Eve Sunday morning to church? Why did Jesus garner that devotion from you and your soul? Did it go something like, well, this is what I always do? 
that's what I'm supposed to do. I've got nothing else to do. I would look bad if I didn't show up. A combination of all of those. Or did your heart spring forth and well up within you to say, Jesus Christ deserves my worship today? And I recognize it, it may be a combination of everything. But if worship was not one of your compelling reasons to show up to church, you may have come with improper or disillusioned motives. If you're reading your Bible this week along with our church-wide reading plan, congratulations, you are, you are almost finished with the Bible. One of the books we read this week was the book of Hebrews. And uh, Hebrews is a very dense, thick, and difficult book. But Hebrews gives us some things that tell us why. I've asked you the question, why does Jesus deserve our worship? And Hebrews answers that question quite clearly. So I thought it fit really well into what we're talking about today. Jesus is worth more than our acknowledgement. Jesus is worth our worship. And I'd like to read you a few passages from the book of Hebrews to say why his coming was more important than any other coming that has happened in the history of humanity. Hebrews chapter 1. This is the evidence and the answer to why is he worthy of worship. Hebrews 1 verse 1. Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God was a God not silent but he spoke. And he spoke by these, a group of people called the prophets who were his mouthpieces to communicate for him. But in these last days, in these latter days, if you will, in these latter days or in the current days, he has spoken to us by his son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, the son, is the radiance of, glo- of the glory of God which we sang in the song that he mirrored. I love that line in that song. He mirrors the very glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Listen. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus sustains. Not only did he make everything, he sustains it for us. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The author of Hebrews does his best to proclaim to us that Jesus is superior to everything. He is the means by which everything is. He is what holds everything together. And he deserves more than just an acknowledgement. He, ex- he deserves our Let me give you an an illustration of this. Uh, Last weekend, my daughter, uh, my daughters went to a concert and uh, it was, they had Christmas songs. It was from a church in Baton Rouge and they had just some phenomenal music. They have very gifted members and, and uh, the, the music was quite incredible. And as they came home, uh, they didn't just say, we went to listen to music. 
In fact, my daughter, Abby, walks in the door and she says, you're not going to believe how great this was. She pulls out her phone and takes over the TV in our den and says, we're watching this right now. She didn't acknowledge that she went to see music. She exploded with love because it was so impressive to her. And it was something that, that was such an explosion in her that it had to be shared. This is the gratitude, the delight, the joy that we must have when we experience the Son of God. There is an overflow within us. Jesus is better than the prophets. The author of Hebrews says, He gives us every breath that we take. Let me continue. Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who, have, who, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. Let me stop there for a moment and share with this, this with you. To a Jewish reader, Moses was the master. He was the great The greatest of all of the prophets. He was the one that people looked back to. Abraham and Moses were were the the heroes of the Old Testament. And if you read through Jesus' interactions, they they either allude to, to Moses or to Abraham. But Moses was the greatest of the prophets to them. In fact, he wrote the first five books of the Bible. Much of the early portions of the Bible were from Moses. So he was great. And the author of Hebrews is telling a Jewish audience... But he is not the greatest prophet, y'all. The greatest prophet came after him. And in fact, he was, he was so much greater. Look in uh, verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. It's all about Jesus, he says. And that is the great glory. Verse 5 says, now Moses was, a faithful, was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify of the things that were going to be spoken of later. In other words, Moses, your great prophet, existed because Jesus was greater. Jesus did not come merely to be acknowledged. He came to be worshipped. Hebrews chapter 4 continues very uh, similarly. And it says in verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast to our confessions. Notice that Jesus is a high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus is supernatural. The Jewish reader of this would have understood that that for their whole lives they've been under a priesthood. Some of them, even their family members, were in the priesthood. And and remember, they were there to serve slash worship in the temple. Same Hebrew word, avad. That was their job. The author of Hebrews comes back and says, Jesus is the supernatural priest. He's the one even greater who goes into heaven and continues our priesthood. In fact, he says he, he does it better 
than the priest could have been. He is a forever high priest. He doesn't age out of his priesthood. And then we go to Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost in a better way, to the greatest way possible, those who draw near to God through him. Let me read that one more time for you. Consequently, he is able to serve to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Let me finish reading this, and I've got one final point to make with you, for you. Verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, a supernatural high priest. Why? He has no need like those of high priests who offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. Jesus died to save sinners that repent. <laughs> For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of oath, God's greater promise, which came later, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Religious activities are an expression of salvation, not a means to salvation. Religious activities are an expression of salvation, not a means to salvation. What does this mean? This means this. As we've talked about worship, avad, service, devotion to our God. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, every time you come to church, you are expressing your avad, your Service your worship to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not earning a way to get in his good graces, but rather you are expressing that you are committed, devoted to the service of the king. And we have wrapped that up in a word that we call worship that may include singing on a Sunday morning. It may include scripture reading. It may include listening to the preaching of God's word. It may include teaching a class or cooking a breakfast. Whatever all of these things to do that, that encompass what our worship is, this is what has come to become to known as our service and devotion to God. Romans 12.1 says it this way. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy to you, to offer your body as a living sacrifice, as a living service to God. 
which is your spiritual, help me out church, what? Worship. Let me give you the great application today. And that is this. You, Christian, are a worshiper of God. You are a servant in the kingdom. And the high calling of the kingdom of Christ. Because your Redeemer has come. If you study words, you can look back in English and the history of the word, what we know as worship, W-O-R-S-H-I-P. I did some digging and some studying on what worship is. and uh, In the Old English, even before the King James English, in the Old English, the word was spelled like this, W-E-O-R-T-H. S-C-I-P-E. I'm going to do that one more time for y'all. The word worship was spelled W-E-O-R-T-H. Worth, worth, S-C-I-P-E. If we were to hear someone say it, and I won't do it with a funny accent, it would sound something like this. Worthship. Worship. Worship is ascribing worthiness or worthness to something. What are those things that are worthy to you? Zondervan Bible Dictionary says it this way. It is to honor and revere and pay homage to something. What is worth it to you? Where does your worship go? Where is your devotion? Jesus came not to be acknowledged. He came to be Worshipped. I remind you of the parable that Jesus told of the man who found treasure hidden in a field. Y'all remember what he did? The kingdom of heaven is like this. A man found treasure hidden in a field. And what did he do? He, he hid it again in the field. He went away, he sold everything he had, and he bought the field. You remember that parable? He sold everything he had to acquire that which was worth it to him. And this man who goes to the field and finds a treasure... And says, this treasure is worth more to me than everything else that I have. And so he abandons everything and says, this is worth it. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like this. 
If you've never come to a place in your life where you have ascribed the greatest worth to the Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to examine the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never come to a place where you have devoted yourself, as will happen this Saturday, in a commitment, not to another human, but to the supernatural mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ the Lord, where you say, I am committing myself forever and always to Jesus Christ my Lord. Today may be the day you need to do business with God. Samantha, we're so proud of your baptism last week. I know many got to celebrate with you. We celebrate with you this morning. But that was your first wedding, if you will. That was your first public, always and forever commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Congratulations. Jesus Christ came to save sinners that repent. Jesus came as a baby. We celebrate on Christmas, but he came to die on a cross to be buried and to rise again on the third day. And God did that to demonstrate him as his son worthy of worship. This is the Christian gospel message. This is Christmas Eve. This is why we celebrate Christmas as Christians, because Jesus Christ is worthy. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for your word to point to us the worthy Son of God, Jesus Christ the Lord. You are worthy of worship and worthy of praise. And Father, we do not merely acknowledge you, your Son, Jesus. We give him glory, honor, and our great worship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need to